Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a seasoned psychoanalyst each month about contemporary psychoanalytic concepts applied to our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Dr. Alexander Stein. Alexander Stein is the founder of Dolus Advisors, a bespoke psychodynamic strategy consultancy that advises CEOs, boards, founders, and other enterprise leaders in people and culture challenges involving psychological and psychosocial underpinnings. He's also a principal in the Boswell Group, a consortium of psychiatrists and psychoanalysts delivering psychological expertise in organizational contexts, and he sits on the advisory boards of several technology, cybersecurity, and social mission organizations, most recently including Cyan, the Psychotherapy Action Network, a mental health advocacy group. He's a graduate, senior member, and faculty of the National Psychological Association for Psychoanalysis. Drawing on his training and clinical experience, he leverages deep expertise in human decision-making and behavior to advise leaders across a broad array of industries. In addition to core advisory offerings in organizational leadership, culture, governance, and executive succession, he's frequently engaged as a specialist partner in wide-ranging multidisciplinary collaborations, including psychodynamic intelligence analysis and actionable defense and recovery solutions in cases of multi-jurisdictional fraud, corruption, kleptocracy, and institutional malfeasance, mitigating human risks in cybersecurity, and ensuring technologies intended to assume autonomous decision-making functions in human affairs are ethically and socially responsible by design and in practice. He's widely published and cited in both the psychoanalytic literature and mainstream business press, and currently a regular contributor to the Forbes Leadership Strategy Channel, writing on the psychology of decision-making and unintended consequences in organizations and society. Today, Dr. Stein will discuss his work at Dolus Advisors and his thoughts on the risks and opportunities with technology. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nicole. It's really great to be here and to talk to you and your audience. So you've had a very long and interesting career, starting as a musician, then a psychoanalyst, and now a psychodynamic management consultant. Can you tell us a little bit about your path? Yeah, it's been a circuitous, iterative process of coming to now. I started out as a musician when I was a boy and went to conservatory and had a performing career deep into my 20s and then made the decision as I started looking further into the future that I wanted to have a career that involved much less travel so that I could become a father who would be at home more. I was in therapy at the time with someone who was an analyst. And as I was surveying the landscape of potential new professions and professional identities, I realized 
that I found the experience of being in psychotherapy to be enormously compelling and interesting. And looking back, I understand that what was happening was really a curiosity in the transference relationship. But nonetheless, I was looking at it as what is his job? What is he actually doing here that's contributing to my experience? As I started assessing different career paths, I decided that psychoanalysis was the direction that I wanted to go in. I went back to school and went into training at NPAP. And my goal at that time was to develop a conventional scholar clinician career. Then my wife and I experienced 9-11 directly. We lived across the street from the World Trade Center and we were pregnant with our first child at that time. Wow. And we were displaced and it was a very difficult period for us as it was for many, many people. The good news was all we lost was stuff. And there were thousands of people who lost loved ones and thousands who lost their lives. It was a turning point for me, the experience of becoming a new father in a moment of trauma and dislocation and geopolitical unrest came together in ways that catalyzed a kind of thinking for me that had been at the periphery and then became central and clear and propelled me to think about what I was doing in a different way. And I started to connect to the idea of being a social entrepreneur more than feeling like I wanted to stay as a clinician in private practice. So I started considering what would that mean, having already undertaken a total professional pivot, I couldn't really stomach the idea of another morph. The good news in there is that it actually forced me in a sense, or I forced myself to think about how to make a change as a psychoanalyst rather than changing from being a psychoanalyst. So the choice for me was to consider how to take that body of knowledge and expertise with my patients to scale, basically, to take it out into the world to have broader impact. And specifically, I was motivated in large part because my observations of what was going on in the world in terms of decision-making by people in positions of great authority with real influence over large portions of the electorate post 9-11 was they were amplifying anxieties not carrying things forward in a particularly beneficial way, I started to focus more and more on the idea of working with people in positions of authority, influence, and responsibility, namely leaders. That began the process of really expanding or widening the scope of practice for myself at that time. I characterized the shift as going from practicing psychoanalysis to deploying it. I like that. Oftentimes within the field of psychoanalysis, we talk about what you do and categorize it as applied psychoanalysis. And you just clarified something by calling it deployed psychoanalysis in a social at scale kind of way. I'm interested in learning more about that. So how does it differ from traditional management consulting or other kinds of consulting with leaders? 
How does it differ from traditional clinical psychoanalysis if you're working one-on-one or working with a group because we have a group process theory? How could you differentiate those for us? Yeah, those are all good and important questions. I want to start a little bit further back in your preface to the questions, though, when you use the phrase applied psychoanalysis. So I'm going to take that as an opportunity to start throwing some rocks around with respect to that. (laughs) I'll duck. Uh, Don't worry. (laughs) No, not at you. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) But at the field, because the idea of applied psychoanalysis has a very long history going back almost to the beginning of psychoanalysis itself. And I'm not going to take the time from our conversation, which will go into many other things to recount all of that. But Its central implication is taking psychoanalysis that normally or properly is intended to be with a patient into something where there is no patient, some art form or biography, psychobiography, or another realm or domain, but it's not working with a patient. If you just think about the words, that makes perfect sense and I would have no objection to it. However, in the history and development of the practice of psychoanalysis and the industry of psychoanalysis around the world and as an american citizen who is a product of the legacy of the kind of torturous development and establishment of non-medical psychoanalytic practice so-called lay analysis Applied psychoanalysis is really a kind of antediluvian vestige of a form of classism, that it was established as a way of differentiating proper psychoanalysts, medical doctors who did the right kind of psychoanalysis four or five times a week with patients on the couch and other people who belonged to a lesser caste. So I do not consider what I do to be applied psychoanalysis. And in fact, in an earlier piece that I published about music and psychoanalysis, I made a similar pitch, although it was not politically framed then. It was really more about the idea of interdisciplinary rather than applied psychoanalysis. All of that being said, now let me turn to your question. So I am... A psychoanalyst. I was trained, I was educated, I practiced with patients. I still actually do have some patients in my practice, a very small number, but nonetheless, I am not outside of what it is to be a clinician. So there's no compartmentalization or divestiture. When I am in a CEO's office or in a boardroom or talking with technologists or international fraud litigators or whatever the professional context may be for me, I am a psychoanalyst. How I present what I know and what I can do as a psychoanalyst is quite different. And the project, in a sense, of deploying psychoanalytic expertise in business settings or in other non-critical settings looks and feels different. I think what you're saying is interesting. I'm putting 9-11 at the center of this, and I'm thinking of some of the early writings of both Lacan and Freud around what do we do with the social? I think many, many psychoanalysts right now who are like you, who are like me, who are like lots and lots of different kinds of psychoanalysts, even ones who are classically trained, are asking ourselves the question, is it ethically responsible and okay 
to work in ways that don't touch the social. And by the social, I mean racism, ethics, whatever it is that's happening outside of our consulting rooms and so on. And I think what you're talking about is ways to impact people who have tremendous power and impact the social. And it's a very creative use of psychoanalysis, as far as I can tell. I'm glad you think so. I would agree. I have no criticism of orthodox psychoanalysis, other than the fact that it can or has tended to obscure the broader social realm. That being said, I think there may be no other practice to understanding and working with the deep interior self outside of psychoanalysis that understands that sometimes it's really necessary to just be on the inside in a sense, almost like performing surgery, you have to go in and you're not on the outside. That is unique and peerless. And one of the things that makes psychoanalysis truly special and powerful in ways that I would say nothing else is or can be. However, it also has tended to look away or to suppress, in a sense, the significance of what's going on, not just in the broader world, but sometimes even in the patient's external world. Mm -hmm. It's a shared world. These are common right. experiences. And so that form of quiet denialism is antithetical, actually, to a psychoanalytic stance. I'm deeply interested in you explaining how what you do differs from clinical psychoanalysis. I'm picturing you in boardrooms, in various one-on-ones with senior leaders, and I'm aware that you would not have enough of their time to really attend in the way that a psychoanalyst would in a clinical setting. How is that different? You already named one of the prime elements or differentiators, and that is time. In my experience, the pace of everything is accelerated in consulting. The sort of prevailing and I think appropriate view in a psychoanalysis or a long-term depth psychotherapy is that there's always the next session. If you encounter extreme resistance or defense or there's something of particular note for the patient in that day that seems to depart from something that might be considered more important to you as the clinician or actually is more significant, you follow the patient. And that dictum has an important place in clinical technique and practice. In consulting, the structure is different. The work is contractualized and there are clear deliverables that have been put into a scope of work. Oftentimes there are outcomes that are expected and that even need to be measured in some way or at least have to be noticeable. I don't feel pressured by that at this point after many years of doing this, but there's an awareness of clock time in a sense or the calendar, which is different. There's not just this timelessness that can occur in working with patients, when you know that you have a senior executive's hour, there's not a lot of time to pause and reflect on certain things. So depending on the situation, if somebody is deeply depressed or really anxious or contending with something that really does require therapy, I may, but not necessarily at the very beginning, recommend 
that there be a referral made and say, you know, I am trained as a psychoanalyst and I bring psychoanalytic tools to the work that we do. However, this is not therapy or analysis. And there are some other things that you could benefit from working on as an adjunct to what we surface here together. And if you're receptive to it, I'd like to make a referral. That's one way that I would handle that. Another difference is language. So absolutely never talk like a psychoanalyst. I never use <laughs> jargon. I never speak in a way that directly references theory. How does a psychoanalyst talk? Using the terms and the concepts that we I have. See. like you Okay, know, so even, theoretical ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even my reference a little while ago to transference fantasy. You know, I would not talk about like, well, so what are you thinking about me right now kind of thing. I would be monitoring how is the executive responding to what's happening in real time with me right now? And I can often extrapolate that to how that person works with direct reports. And when I'm working with senior teams, I actually have an opportunity to find out because I am meeting with other individuals on the team. And then I'll bring them all together and we can have conversations about team dynamics and team culture, and there'll be meetings both with the CEO and then without the CEO to be able to open up those channels. So there are lots of ways of tapping into deeper pockets of what people are thinking and feeling than they might be able to talk about otherwise. And that represents yet another component of what I bring as a psychoanalyst in terms of being able to understand how to open up a space for people to feel safe, in other words, to build a good alliance and to underscore in lots of implicit as well as explicit ways that it's confidential and that my work entails understanding what's going on, but not directly reporting and attributing what so-and-so said about so-and-so, but really about how they're experiencing what they're doing and how that affects their work. And it's a variation on a theme rather than a form of malpractice. It's interesting, as you're talking, I'm imagining that the person who hires you or the group that hires you has the experience of you being relatively similar on the outside or at the outset to a traditional management consultant. You know, there's deliverables, there's a statement of work, you come in, there's meetings. Many traditional consultants, as I understand it, I did some consulting at one point, will have a sense of what they know, maybe even a method that they always apply. So it's not a bespoke consultancy. They'll come in and say, this is how we do team building. We have X number of meetings and we measure Y and Z and whatever the variables are, and we intervene in this way, and then you have your result. It sounds like yours is entirely, it's the same, but it's different in that you're listening as a psychoanalyst and you're making your interventions informed from that perspective, but the person on the outside doesn't have the feeling that they're necessarily getting either something that's already pat and delivered. They're getting something real time delivered in terms of whatever the dynamics are that are unfolding. And they're getting the benefit of your psychoanalytic background in that way. Is that right? That is absolutely right. But they may not know that. <laughs> that's what they're getting. <laughs> they may not know it, although let's come back to some of the challenges 
But to go back to what you were just talking about, I completely agree with you, Nicole, that one thing that I come in with is diagnostic curiosity. I do not approach any engagement from a position of authoritative knowledge or with any off-the-shelf products, so to speak, of like, you know, this this is my method and this is what we're going to do. I always come in asking, so what's going on? And I'm also constantly thinking about the history of an organization and its people to try to rapidly determine, even if it's only provisionally, how did you get to here? If this is what's going on, why? And trying to deconstruct from my early conversations, what were the various inflection points where you could have gone in one direction, but you didn't, and why? Are you just stuck in this particular direction, or do you actually know that this is not where you want to be going, but you don't actually understand how to change course. So what I'm trying to do is to understand the lay of the land and the set of people who are in front of me in their particular situation so that I can facilitate their achieving their goals, which is really what my mandate is, as effectively and rapidly as possible. And another thing that I'll add there is that by virtue of approaching all of my conversations with that kind of diagnostic curiosity is in itself really quite a potent force. Because yes. when you're talking to somebody who, let's say, has never really talked with a sense of openness or vulnerability around, you know, this is what my challenges are, other than, let's say, presenting to shareholders or something like Q3 didn't go as well as we thought, or, you know, revenue is down or sales were not what they were supposed to be, but different, like more intimate kinds of challenges. And I ask more questions. There are always follow-up questions to answers in terms of what's happening there, or like, what were you thinking about when you decided to do it this way instead of that way, or something like that? And even asking a question like that, which does not present any pressure on the executive to give a right or a wrong answer, actually prompts often a kind of self-reflection on, oh, there was another option there that was actually not in my awareness. So that immediately, you could say, is achieving multiple functions technically in one fell swoop. So it's the diagnosis and the intervention at all yes. at once. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm gaining a tremendous amount of data in those moments. And also the executive is being presented with how I work and also the, having the experience of being gently prompted in a sense to think more expansively, which is one of the things that I think psychoanalysis can do so well. I like to think of it as a way of creating optionality. One of the effects of neurosis or other forms of psychopathology is a constriction of thought and behavior. And so psychoanalysis, by definition, I think, acts as a kind of expander to that to enable people to come out of those repetitive loops and patterns and recognize that when they come upon something that is provocative of a constricting or regressive response, that there are other options available. You got me thinking, you mentioned this is all linked to their goals. And it's very frequent in, in the practice of clinical psychoanalysis for people to come in with a goal that I know is likely to shift once we start working. They'll say, you know, I want you to help me 
make my mother-in-law like me more or something. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. recognize that like, okay, there's pain in that relationship. Likely if we start talking about it, it will open up a broader story and the goals will shift, I'm hoping, because obviously I don't have the capacity to make your mother-in-law do anything. That said, do you ever get goals where you have deliverables that you disagree with, either because they are unethical goals, squash my competitor, make me the monopoly, or something that you think is unlikely I've never been in a situation where I've been asked to do something that I find ethically reprehensible or that I would reject. That being said, a part of my work frequently involves speaking truth to power. And I do often have to say things like, I don't agree that this is the way to go. I'd like us to talk about what the plan is here. Most of the time, the challenge has to do with scaling expectations against budget and calendar. So if someone is like, we need this done in four months, I might say, well, let's do a four-month phase one and then reassess. So there's some back and forth around those things. Do you find that the goals that they present you with change through the process? Inevitably, for lots of reasons. And in this regard, it's not terribly different from what happens in the first few sessions with a new patient, just on a different scale and a different setting, which is to say that the presenting issues or the ones that have been identified as the problems or whatever it is that needs to be worked on may not be actually the ones or they may be of a cluster of other ones and or actually interrelate with lots of other things. And so I look at organizations as human ecosystems. And so when I am encountering something, everyone is in a relationship with everyone there, as well as all of their other outside work relationships and their historical relationships. And so Uh you have this universe of attachment issues and, and transferences, right? So whether I'm working with a board or an executive team or working as a collaborator in another kind of team where I'm actually not addressing them, but we're working as partners in a project, attending being two team dynamics and how people are relating to each other and managing conflicts and things like that are always part of the work. And going back to the stimulus of thinking as a social entrepreneur, I find all of that just incredibly dynamic and fulfilling. And for me, it's great. That's wonderful. So could we get into a little closer to your work? And really, would you be willing to share with us some of the kinds of problems and concerns your clients bring to you, or maybe a little case study, how you approach it, maybe how it unfolded? You can anonymize us as you see fit. I'm sure you're under NDA with people, but maybe share with us a little bit of your work. Sure. So on top of the foundation that I've just been describing and that we've been talking about, how situations with different clients play out in broad varieties of ways, really depending on the space that I'm working in. There are not too, too many people who do this kind of work. There are my colleagues in the Boswell Group, and there are any number of people who are organizational psychologists. But in the main, people who have this kind of dual or hyphenated type of practice tend to focus on like executive coaching or, you know, executive development and boards and things of that nature. And that is certainly also central to my suite of offerings. And I love doing that. I do also have a wide range of 
practice areas. I am, as you described in that very generous intro, working in the space of fraud and corruption and abuses of power and in the technology space and in cybersecurity and in ethics and compliance and governance. And so the kinds of issues that I'm presented with when I have engagements in any of those areas all look and feel different. And from my perspective, just to add quickly in terms of like, who am I to lay claim to being able to do all of those different kinds of things, the nodal access to all of it is people, right? It's leaders making decisions. My marketing tagline is expertise in human decision-making and behavior. And that plays out in lots of different ways, in lots of different areas. And so what needs to be done or what the problems are or what the solutions will be will vary from case to case. But I don't go into a particular situation making a claim to know something about a space that I'm not educated in. You know, I'm not a technologist. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have an MBA. I'm not an economist. So when I'm working in places or in settings, I am always behind the client in many ways in terms of knowledge and expertise about their business or their sector or their space. Um, but I'm the only person in the room who knows what I know about certain things that are going on and that are interfering with or disturbing, they're doing what they need to be able to do. So the focus on decision-making, how is the thinking going? How are they handling conflicts? How are they handling their relationships and so on is what is similar among all of those cases? Yes. For example, in cybersecurity training, often people are given phishing tests and they fail if they get the wrong answer, but there often is no follow-up to understand, well, what were you thinking or what were you feeling when you made that decision? You know, understanding what are the psycho-emotional effects of being in a stressor event or the victim of some form of social engineering and helping people to understand on an individual as well as a, an enterprise level what happens when that happens and what are people going to be able to do rather than just training them with the hope that they won't do what you don't want them to do, which rarely works out. That's right. The fingers crossed method doesn't work well. No, it doesn't. So I've had a number of experiences collaborating with global size consulting firms that come in and they do the technology rollout that builds on my human architecture for those kinds of plans and systems. And it's really dynamic and fascinating. And speaking to large groups of employees around, these are the kinds of things that your leaders are trying to help prevent. Let's talk about how you can all participate in that and become champions of safety, not the weak link. In terms of threat and risk, I have been an embedded team member in fraud cases in Brazil where we've traveled in armored cars and mm. there were people wow. with us when we would go to dinner or when we were traveling with judges and other members of the judiciary who were carrying guns and often interfacing in those kinds of cases with former three-letter agency people, CIA and FBI or Interpol. They're all highly trained, essentially military personnel. 
I have never been in a situation where I felt threatened, but oftentimes the work does intersect with, in a sense, almost definitionally, with bad people who are lawless and sociopathic in certain ways. There are certain inherent risks to it, but that does lead to some of the value that I bring. One of the starting points, in fact, for launching that practice area came from a fellow whose law firm is based in the British Virgin Islands and who is arguably one of the world's foremost fraud and anti-corruption litigators who reached out to me knowing my work through my early writings in Fortune with the impressive self-awareness that he and his colleagues were essentially operating as amateur psychologists and that there were real limitations to what they knew and what they could do and that in as much as they were doing work that involves understanding the psychology of the malevolent actor and his network of co-conspirators, as well as dealing with the effects of those bad acts on the victims, the claimants who are often their clients, that what they know and what they do as lawyers and investigators and forensic accountants and computer analysts, all of that work is extraordinary. And it's also fundamentally and centrally human. And if you have no one around who really understands what's going on, it's a handicap. And any team leader who's looking to optimize effectiveness, not just efficiency, understands that you need to have the right people in the right seats. And so I've been brought in to help them understand. So you're actually really speaking about psychoanalysis as another technology that is brought to the table together with other professionals to work on really complicated problems. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned that too before when it comes to technology. I want to talk for a moment about consumer technology or maybe even business-to-business -business technology. To what extent are your clients having concerns about technology or techno-ethics or anything like that? I've spoken a lot about my concerns. To what extent is that a focus of any of the practice areas or clients that come to you? That area is challenging for a number of reasons. One of the prime ones being that the technology space, even though it now talks a lot more about the importance of ethics and certainly with the rapid rise of AI, which I hope that we will also talk about, we there's will. enormous focus on what's called affective computing and interventions that technology is designed to do or inadvertently has that impacts how people feel. There is a lot more talk and interest in human psychology. However, there's, in my experience so far, not a great deal of rubber meeting road with regard to technology companies and venture capitalists who are funding a lot of these new emerging applications in bringing that kind of specialization into the development process. Oftentimes it's like, well, yeah, we can do this. And then there's blowback. You know, it's a little bit like the just move fast and break things mentality. So technology is omnipresent and not dealing with the risks as well as being able to really ethically leverage all of the opportunities 
is a huge mistake all around. And my view is that psychoanalysis, when used in the ways that I've been talking about so far, brings something so potent and so valuable that it's a patent error for the technology space to dismiss it. Tell me what you think about this. My experience is that psychoanalysts don't get to the table very frequently because the conversation kind of goes like this. The user, if they're experiencing some sort of problem or some sort of negative effect as a result of using the technology, frequently it's kids or people who are otherwise vulnerable. Sometimes it's large groups of people. The blame always goes to the user and the responsibility goes to the user. However, I think it really doesn't responsibly deal with the idea that maybe there are other creative solutions that are equally profitable or maybe more that don't have these risks. What do you think about that idea? Is it a problem of not having enough choices, not having options? I'm not sure that it's a restrictive menu of options, but rather the thinking around which options seem easiest, most appealing, and most profitable. And that once the system is online and released, the social response is one of compliance, essentially. So the idea of individual opting out is always available, but less likely at scale. Part of the challenge here is coming in early enough to help tech leaders understand how to develop products and services that aren't patently malicious or nefarious or exploitative or addictive or obviously or even implicitly harmful without derogating against profiteering. There are certain applications and systems that are purpose-built for causing various kinds of harm. These are not the products of cartels. These are Fortune 100 companies. Yes, yes, they are. That are disseminating misinformation and disinformation, and the algorithms are purposely designed to get people to argue with their spouses and their neighbors and to cause political polarization. And all of the byproducts of that generate revenue. The designers and the investors are themselves intoxicated by the upsides and are blinded to the options. So, but it, there's not a dearth of other alternatives. That's right. So here too, my focus is on the people who have the most influence, not on trying to come at broadside the entire technology space. I would also consider it important to add, as we're starting to veer into this dimension of the conversation, that I am by no means an anti-technology troglodyte. I am very pro-technology, and I'm super excited by a lot of the potentials of many of the recent technological developments. There are just so many things that are possible and the potential is very, very exciting. And the potential benefits to individuals and society in many ways, if it's actually handled responsibly and thoughtfully are manifold. That being said, 
the problem here is the problems that we've always had with any form of new technology is the ways in which it gets weaponized and abused and misused and that there are people who are catapulted into positions of gargantuanly disproportionate power and influence who have absolutely no idea and or are almost willfully indifferent to the risks and consequences. And that I find actually more dangerous. We will, I hope, talk more about some of the particulars with certain technologies, including AI in specific. My worries and the things that upset me and the things that I really want to be able to work in and on have less to do with the thing itself and more to do with the people who are delivering the thing. Yes, yes. You and I are in alignment on that. It's almost as if we have to bring our technology to the table to intervene on the thinking that is happening and the human processes that are happening before the technology even gets developed or pushed out. What do you think the future is going to hold? Will there be psychoanalysts sitting at the table with product developers, with people at the early development stage to consider the possibilities in their thinking that might open up more creative, healthful solutions that are equally profitable, that solve real problems, that protect and don't have this many risks? Are we going to essentially address the antisocial or the problematic leader who is not really caring about the risks and thus also limiting his or her future Insofar as I'm guessing there's a time limit on these kinds of products and services. I'm guessing the public and the regulators are going to get tired of problematic tools that are designed to addict us or designed to distract us or polarize us or what have you. I'm rooting for the good of human connection in the end. Is it possible that we will have a seat at the table or that that might be a technology that could help? If I have anything to do with it, absolutely, definitively, yes. What are the barriers to people taking us seriously, though? Some of it is normalizing the significance and complexity of human psychology and raising the bar on psychological literacy, enabling people in positions of power and influence to better appreciate the value and the enhancement to what it is that they're trying to do by having psychological and psychodynamic expertise just as a natural part of the development process for the business and for the technology. Part of the barrier is a byproduct of the ongoing stigmatization and peripheralization of depth-oriented work in itself, which is, as we understand as psychoanalysts, intrinsic to the human condition. It is a macro-social defense against looking at who are we and why do we do the things that we do and how can we change that. And the massive individual and collective impulses to turn away from that or to deny it or to disavow it or to recreate it and recontextualize it as something other than what it actually is, is so pervasive and so powerful. Now, the antidote to that is not to concoct an antidote to that. It's a force that has to be contended with. I think in a different way from how it has been if you want to bring this to scale. So in my view, again, this is something where the industry of 
depth therapies and psychoanalysis does everyone a disservice by perpetuating not just the idea of applied psychoanalysis, but the ethos that comes along with it, which is to say, this is what we do, and this is our lane, and we want to stay here, and we want more patients, and we want more people to understand the benefits of therapy, and they should come. Yes, that's all well and good. However, there are also lots of other ways that psychoanalysis is incredibly powerful and useful, and the industry itself ought to be a champion of that and to help facilitate that. It's not something that's normally trained in institutes. There are places people can go to learn about doing work in organizations and with leaders, and these kinds of things are gaining a little bit more traction and acceptance, even in B-schools. But more of that would be necessary. Like if you had Adam Grant level visibility, and you actually could have every B-school teaching a class in the psychodynamics of leadership or understanding the implications of technology on early development or something like that, and normalizing it as a part of the curriculum and education of people who go into those fields. I think it would eventually start to have a world of difference, and then you're going to see greater ease of acceptance for practitioners like me and you. You touched on AI. Tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are on AI, its future. What do you think the future will bring? Are there risks? Are there benefits? Are you tracking anything in particular? Yeah, there are great benefits in potential and really dizzyingly significant risks. <laughs> Let's start with the risks, actually. There are a number of real use case potentials that are being fulfilled and that are super interesting. Uh, DeepMind CEO had started a company a number of years ago before he was acquired by Google called AlphaFold, where he was focused on really bringing to bear leading edge machine learning to solve biochemical problems to help patients. My understanding is that they achieved some success with that and that it really leapfrogged the research that was being done because of the compute power that just far exceeds what human researchers could possibly have done. So that stands as like one stellar example of the incredible potential benefit of this kind of technology in society. Like if it can be brought to bear to help us solve cancer or to help doctors do their work more effectively and accurately and that sort of thing. If it can help in chemical technologies or petro technologies or help environmental scientists model out better ways of harnessing alternative energy sources. You know, these sorts of things are some of the ways that technology is just extraordinary and should be embraced and furthered. On the other side, however, there is this project to create as it has been called, artificial intelligence, to replicate human thought and decision-making and to somehow magically create a form of synthetic cognition that harnesses the velocity and compute power modeled on neural networks and cortical structures and essentially gorging these systems on 
all of the information in the world, kind of downloading the web <laughs> mm-hmm. and the Library of Congress and saying basically like, here, now you've got this information, do something for us with it. It's nutty in itself. It's also, from my perspective, a doomed proposition. There's an article that I've been percolating on but have not yet written that I want to do to publish in something like Wired or MIT Technology Review that illuminates how people actually learn and think to surface the significant interior components of embodied subjective experience and early attachment and all of the different ways in which a lived life impacts how character forms and therefore how one makes decisions in dynamic real-time situations. And it's not just the difference between a lab setting and the real world setting. It's that we don't experience life like the trolley problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the way in which somebody who, let's say, grew up in a state of persistent economic and nutritional neglect and deprivation is going to have an impact on how she thinks about things and how she does things. And somebody who was sexually used or lived in an environment where there was persistent emotional threat, or as the case may be, like it's just the universe, the array of different kinds of experiences don't just speak to the variability of human experience and decision-making. It is about the ways in which attempting to round the edges of cognitive processes distills something to its essence, but actually leaves aside or leaves out so many of the things that constitute how we actually make decisions. So these omissions, from my perspective, are creating just radical technical debt, and that even as there are great gap-leaping advances in what the algorithms can do and the difference in emulation capabilities between ChatGPT 3 and 4 and supposedly 5 coming soon are demonstrable. However, there are so many things that they still can't do, and from my perspective, given what people are not thinking about and are not dealing with and not embedding from day one in the life cycle of the coding, they will not get there. So super artificial general intelligence is fantastical unless or until the project of trying to recreate human decision-making is abandoned and the project becomes, let's build something different and figure out how we can use that. There's so much inside of what you said, because if we replicate human decision-making, we've already discussed human decision-making has lots of flaws, even as much as we like to make it the basis, thinking that somehow that would humanize AI and it would protect us if we build it off of human decision-making. That said, one thing that psychoanalysts know is that there's value in love and loss. There's value in all of that complexity, some of those traumas and subjective experiences that when worked through, they come to help us make meaning and help us to open ourselves to more love and loss and to more experiences and so on with an 
open mind and open heart with more capacity to create, more capacity to care, et cetera. What I worry about is that some of these machines are built off of not necessarily care. Like there isn't a basic philosophical presence at the beginning of what is the point? Sure, we could build lots of things to do interesting things. We could build it on the basis of human decision-making or on some other basis. But have we ever stopped to ask the philosophical questions first? Why? And for whom? I think there's some pre-work steps to happen at the beginning. Yeah, I completely agree with you. There are a number of interesting things about that. One is that philosophers have robustly stepped into the space yes. and are elbowing out people with expertise in psychology, sociology, and anthropology. These are not all actually philosophical questions in some regards. That's right. Back to That's right. Sort of the difference between a psychoanalysis that only considers the interior world and discounts or ignores the social. And here, if you only think about such existential problems from a philosophical perspective, which is not to say that there isn't such a thing as like practical philosophy, but it's not purely philosophical. And I would argue right. at the risk of arousing the ire of philosophers who may be listening, that philosophy is in itself foundationally psychological. Philosophy and psychology used to be bedfellows. And I think yeah. there was a rift 125 years ago in continental Europe. Alas, we have that split. Is there more you want to say about AI? I think it's an important topic. It is. The project, which is itself a kind of perverse fantasy, to idealize a form of human-like decision-making, but which is devoid of affect and the irrationality and pain, it has been a driving force in sci-fi forever. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the sort of humanoid robot or the cyborg is of perpetual appeal. And this is playing itself out in a way that now has substance and tangibility in the world, whereas before it was purely in the realm of sci-fi. That, I think, is cause for concern. There's not just, as you correctly point out, a lack of care, but there's a near absence of care with regard to what are the implications and consequences of that. And in fact, with some of the current tech leaders, a valorization and a fetishization of pursuing this. In fact, there seems to be no visible negative to it. It conforms to ideas regarding transhumanism or immortality mm -hmm. or some wish to be unburdened by the problems of the physical body and attempts to upload consciousness or to transfer the content of the mind or the brain to the cloud and then be able to transfer that to other bodies and other brains. It's grandiose. <laughs> well, it is grandiose, but it's also reflective of hatred, which is in a sense the opposite of care for life. So this is problematic because it is actually being commercialized now, not just written about in a book or turned into a movie by a creative director. When you have commercial products being released that are designed to 
intervene in human affairs, whether it's as a therapy app or some other form of affective computing to nudge people to be happier or to be more productive or to predict recidivism or the kinds of things regarding cognitive liberty that Nita Farahani is concerned about and writing about. There should be alarm bells going off. Here you have the interweaving of economics and politics and the ease with which these sorts of problems can be dismissed and negated, whether it's at the family level or the macro-social level. So there is a lot of advocacy work that needs to be done, not just psychoanalytic consulting to the technology companies and the venture capitalists who are funding that work. I have one thought as you're talking. I'm thinking about all of the interest in making AI more human-like actually ends up at this time period, there are so many young people who've invested so many hours in their technology products and services that they now don't have as many hours relating to others. And as a result, maybe don't value their own specific emotions, wants and needs, their physical relationships, et cetera. We're kind of creating on both sides the same problem where we are divesting humans of their interest in the human and investing AI with some sort of quasi attempt to be more human-like. And in the end, there's going to be a big loss all around in humans' relationships with others, other humans. Yeah. And this is, in a sense, the repetition compulsion writ large, right? We all yes, continue to make the same mistakes over and over again, just differently. And we have infinite ways of recreating old problems in new ways and thinking that we're solving them. But actually, we're just preserving the original problem and yes. also creating a new one. Yes, yes. Right? At and a big scale. <laughs> right. So when AI first started making news, kind of the leading edge of the 24-7 hype cycle, I was actually really excited precisely because it was so focused on this project of trying to emulate the mind that I thought, oh, here we go. Like, the technology space, given its pervasive influence on the world, is now going to be carrying the bucket up the hill for us because everyone is going to be interested in learning about people because that's what they're focused on. It made complete sense to me, like B follows A in a sense. Like if you're going to be building something, the central feature of which is understanding the mind, that of course you would want to understand the mind and that it would arouse broadened interest and normalize the pursuit of more knowledge in how do people think, why do we do these things, and like how can we computerize that in a sense, right? The opposite has occurred, of course. That was my, that was my wish. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Not reality. In many regards, the project as I see it is to be able to have opportunity to step in to help course correct some of this. That actually leads me to the next question. So what is it that we have responsibilities to do as tech users, as psychoanalysts, in micro or macro ways to influence things? Well, we are 
I think our responsibilities as ethical, pro-social, civic-minded, law-abiding citizens is to do what we would always do on the highest level, hopefully, whether it involves technology or not. Technology is a tool. And one of the things that I say frequently when I'm speaking about these things and when I'm talking to technologists is that technology issues are fundamentally human issues that play out in the use of technology, not issues that are technocratically solved and about the technology. I don't see a huge distinction there in what our responsibilities are. However, to carry your question further in the context of a podcast about technology and the mind, I would like, as somebody who works out in the world in that space and others like yourself, to be able to have beneficial influence at scale on the people who are delivering these applications and services to society. I don't agree that the terms of service are something to which you agree and therefore you are culpable for the outcomes because you ticked the box and indicated that you were not a robot and so you could pass through and use the thing. Responsibility for outcomes is incumbent on producers of products, technological or otherwise. Excellent. We've gone far and wide today. We've talked about so many things. Is there anything else you'd like to add to what we've been speaking about, about AI, about your work, about the field of mental health or anything else? Well, I would pick up on your very important use of the word care psychoanalysis has been called a cure of love. I do happen to think that doing and being in the world in ways that are more focused on being careful, and I don't mean, you know, overly cautious, but taking care, like being aware of the importance of care is significantly important. And the flight from care toward hostility and aggression and polarization and the ways in which technologies, even those that are intended to bring us together in some way through social networks or through communication platforms, are distancing. I would encourage listeners of this conversation to think about care as their going about their day, as they're attending to their work in their professional lives, whatever it is, as they're using their technology and not be complacent. And to be thinking about things like the technology equivalent of blood diamonds or blood money, for example, you know, there's this whole underbelly of really deeply disenfranchised workers who are being exploited around the world to train algorithms and to monitor absolutely horrific, traumatizing images and videos as a way of developing so-called guardrails for content dissemination. And the perpetration of trauma there doesn't seem to be crossing any legal boundaries, but I would say that you don't have to be a moral philosopher to appreciate that it is amoral mm -hmm. in some ways to do that. So as end users, we are participating in that 
in some way. And so to distance ourselves by saying, well, this actually helps me or it works for me or it's good and I don't have to look at those things is not okay. So we all are in this together is essentially what you're saying. Yes. Hmm. You are working on several articles. You're currently engaged in a lot of consulting endeavors. You volunteer. Is there anything you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Well, I think you probably have a range of different kinds of listeners. So maybe I'll take a few minutes to direct different answers to different groups. So to fellow psychoanalysts or mental health professionals, I would ask you to pay attention to my call to action, something that I have written about, not incidentally, in an article that was published in Psychoanalytic Perspectives in 2020 called Psychoanalysis in the Public Sphere, where I lay out a lot of the kinds of ideas that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation in terms of the importance of expanding the understanding of and the scope of actual use of psychoanalysis beyond as a treatment method for patients and that its importance as a technology in the world is greatly underused. And so I am not necessarily appealing to psychoanalysts and other mental health professionals to think about coming out of their consulting room. Goodness knows the world needs more good clinicians. There's a dearth of them. Supply and demand is way out of whack right now. And patients should have good therapists to go to, not be firing up an app that's supposed to help them combat depression or avoid suicidality. But what I am saying is that psychoanalytic institutes and associations and really the prevailing outlook of psychoanalysis does need to engage with the world in a much more robust, contemporary, and creative way, and that there is a kind of conservatism and restriction to being a psychoanalyst in essentially the third decade of the 21st century that is out of date and does not serve us or the public. So there's that group. Two technologists listen to the conversation that you and I just had. There is just so much great stuff that can happen, but for goodness sake, do it right, do it responsibly, do it ethically. Think about what is the difference between we can do something, but should we? Mm -hmm. And how can technology be optimized for profit and great effect and influence at scale, but without doing harm? So there's just so much to be done and there's no good reason for it not to be done. And to listeners who are in positions of authority and responsibility and influence, try to open yourself to thinking about how important it is to be vulnerable to getting help and that the difference between so-called hard and soft deliverables are actually not so large. It's a difference without a difference. People do not think twice about hiring lawyers or accountants or IT folks or other people to fix things or consultants to optimize profit or efficiency or something like that, but they will stop themselves from thinking about 
hiring people who can actually help them do their work better or be more fulfilling in their work or to make better decisions or the kinds of things that we were talking about that I bring. And it is substantially impactful. Ultimately, people in leadership positions who carry tremendous influence and responsibility need to be able to recognize and effectively navigate their own psychological history and their emotional stresses and anxieties and what it means to be themselves. And the capacity for leaders to leverage their own complex character and personality and to fulfill the demands and expectations of high-performing roles and to be a knowledge leader, not just a competency-based leader, I think elevates insight and management of self to an imperative level. My call to action for business leaders and other leaders is to understand that there is huge value, and I mean that in every sense, including economic value and business value, to attending to oneself and to the psychological lives of the people who work in your ecosystem. Wonderful. We've been speaking with Dr. Alexander Stein. I will post some URLs in the show notes for all of you, but you can find him at www.dolusadvisors, that's spelled D-O-L-U-S-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us, Dr. Stein. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you all for listening to Technology and the Mind. Next, we'll be talking with Catherine Salduti, the CEO and founder of EduChange, an educational consulting firm delivering STEM educational tools and systems for K-16 to schools all over the world. She'll share her thoughts on how education and learning are mutually influenced by technology and AI. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Technology in the Mind was funded in part by a grant provided by the American Psychoanalytic Foundation on behalf of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.